you would this morning, let's go back to Galatians chapter 1 as we make our way through the book of Galatians. We've preached two messages so far, and we've seen that the theme of Galatians is our liberty in Christ, with Galatians 5 and verse 1 being the theme verse. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And so, uh, Galatians was really written to recovering Pharisees, and I can really identify because I'm a recovering Pharisee, and so uh, the theme is our liberty in Christ, and uh, Paul is passionately writing to the Christians at these churches in Galatia because these Judaizers, these uh, what Judaizers were, uh, they were Jews who had supposedly converted to Christianity, uh, but these Judaizers had taken over leadership positions in the churches here at Galatia, and they were perverting the gospel of grace. They were adding works to salvation. And they were essentially saying that you had to keep the Old Testament law in order to be made right with God. You had to become Jews in order to become Christians. And I've made the statement several times. I may do it every time I preach Galatians. I just think it's this important. But you better be careful about those groups that say, yes, Jesus is the only way to salvation, but the only way to Jesus is through our church or organization. That is, that is the occult 101. And so the only way to Jesus is by grace through faith in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly the way that Paul begins Galatians. The first five verses, he defends the true gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to glory, uh, the glory of God the Father. And so we looked last week at verses 6 through 9 and how Paul just comes out guns blazing. He doesn't, he, he doesn't even say he's thankful for the Galatian believers as he does in every other epistle. It's not that he wasn't thankful. He was just too focused on what he had to deal with here. Because as we've said, uh, the very gospel has to do with the question of what makes a person right with God. And if you get it wrong, you end up in hell. That's what the Bible says. For all eternity. That's what the Bible says. I can't cut that out of the Bible. God is a holy God. And he must punish sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the God-man, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life in our place. He fulfilled all the just demands of God's law. He died on the cross, taking our sin in his body on the tree, bearing our sin, taking the wrath of God the Father that we deserve so that God could justify sinners without himself being unjust, And then to prove that God the Father was satisfied with His sacrifice, He raised Him from the dead three days later. That's the good news. The good news is you don't have to go to hell. The good news is that you can be made right with the God that created you. The good news is that you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and you can be assured of home in heaven with God when you die. That's the good news. And so that's what Paul is defending here, and he's upset in verses 6 through 9 because he's just, he just marvels that those that have come to salvation through the gospel of grace, now they've kind of been distracted. Well, they ha- uh, yeah, you're, you know, you're saved by grace, but you've got to keep it by works, or you have to earn it by works. It's, <clears throat> it has no place in salvation. Yes, there will be fruit if there is a root of salvation, but we don't work to be saved, and we don't work to keep our salvation or else Christ died in vain. And so that's where we are. By the time we get to our text here today, in verse 10, we're, gonna, we're, we're probably going to finish chapter 1 today, verses 10 through 24. You see, Paul has to take 14 verses in order to de- defend his apostleship. And the only reason that he would have to do that is if these Judaizers had come in and said, hey, you don't need to listen to Paul. He's not even a real apostle. He didn't walk with Jesus like the other ones did. Don't listen to him. Listen to us. That's exactly what they did. And that's exactly why he spends 14 verses defending uh, his apostleship. Now, once again, if you're looking for signs of a cult, this is, again, the occult 101. Because a person can only be subdued with false teachings 
if the foundations are destroyed. No one will listen to something new unless they're doubtful or disconsent with the old. And so this, go, this goes all the way back to Satan in the garden. When Satan came to Adam and Eve and he tempted them with eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did he say? He said, yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree. Did, did God really say that? You're going to use that standard? See, here's the thing. God knows that when you eat, you'll be a God just like His. You'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. And so you see what Satan did? He had to cast doubt on the standard that they had been given, which was the standard of the Word of God. That's exactly what the cults have to do today. Don't believe that Bible. Or even sneakier, well, yeah, oh, yeah, we admire the Bible. It's good. It's it's authoritative so long as it's interpreted rightly. That's exactly what Joseph Smith said. And guess who gets to interpret it rightly? He does. The Mormon church does. And then they say things like, well, yeah, we, we respect the Bible. It's an authority, but so is the Book of Mormon. And so are the Mormon prophets. Uh, well, how does that work? Because what the Mormon prophets and the Book of Mormon say goes squarely against what the Scripture says. Things that are different are not the same I was born at night, but it wasn't last night, okay? They just say that. They, they put it as a little parenthesis to try to make you think that they're one of us and they're not. Look at the authority that somebody is citing. It goes all the way back to Satan, this whole business of questioning the authority of God's Word. Um, and, and if you think, I'm going to talk a lot about Mormonism today just because we live in the epicenter of Mormon country. I'll mention the Jehovah's Witness and maybe a couple of others. Um, <clears throat> but because I already dealt last week with false gospels within the Baptist church, I've, I've took care of our own, and now we can branch out a little bit. Um, but I, I think about um, the Jehovah's Witness. They don't claim to be successors to the apostles uh, necessarily, but they do have their own version of the Bible. I don't know if you know that or not. Jehovah's Witness have their own version of the Bible. It's, the, it's called the New World Translation. And Charles Taze Russell, who did not speak an ounce of Hebrew and Greek, sat down with a King James Bible and literally took out what he wanted to take out. He changed what he wanted to change, and he inserted what he wanted to insert. And the biggest glaring hole in the New World Translation, there's a lot of them, but the main one, the one that completely obliterates their whole system, is John 1.1. New World Translation is the only one. You take Now, there are some textual variants, minimal textual variants in all the manuscripts that we have, uh, but there's not a single variation, John 1. Every Greek translation reads the same. Every English Bible reads the same. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Charles Taze Russell... And the Jehovah's Witness translation is the only copy that you can find anywhere that says he was a God, little g. Big difference, big difference. Uh, Joseph, Joseph Smith messed that verse up so much, by the time you get to 14, you don't even know what he's talking about. And so that's what they do. And, and of course, Joseph Smith, if you'll remember, uh, the entire foundation of Mormonism is built on the idea that after the death of the apostles... There was such a great apostasy, such a great falling away. The, the gospel influence was lost and the word of God was corrupted and, and everything just so corrupted that God had to have Joseph Smith come along in 1830 and restore everything the church had lost. Forget what Jesus said about how the gates of hell would not stand against his church. Everything's lost until he came along. Once again, wasn't born last night. You either have to take the word of the apostles and Christ and the Old Testament prophets and the early church or Joseph Smith. That's it. Either or. Which one's telling the truth? And I know the answer to that question. And so these Judaizers were doing the same thing that I'm talking about here. Uh, don't trust Paul. He's not even a real apostle. Trust us. Uh, this is why Paul felt the need to defend his apostolic authority. And by the way, I'll, I'll say this too. I'll, I'll, I'll go even a step further. There are some Baptist churches and some Baptist pastors that are so isolationist that they're very cultic in the way they handle things. In other words, if, if you don't do it just like I'm doing it, uh, you're not even saved. 
If you're not doing it like I'm, I'm doing it, you're, you're not, you don't even love God. And it's always secular. It's always secondary issues, too. It's never like the virgin birth or the deity of Christ. It's, we need to be careful about that, too. I mean, we ought to be transparent in the way we do We ought to have grace about the way we do things and understand that we're, we're not perfect. We just happen to know a perfect God. And so we ought to be careful about even that. So when we're talking, we're really dealing this morning, this is what I want to really nail to the wall. We're talking about authority. What is your authority? Why do you make the decisions that you make? What are you basing your eternity on? Who is the God that you serve? How do you come up with the way that you live your life? I've only got two points this morning, but as we know, that's nothing to get excited about. And so uh, how do we know who to trust in when it comes to the truth? On whose authority should we stake our lives and our eternity? Well, number one, I want to talk about the authority of Scripture. And I know that this is going to be nothing new to most of you. Uh, but the thing is, I believe if pastors have been preaching this all along, maybe we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. And so some things maybe you've not heard, but the bottom line is, I'm called to preach the truth, and this is where we're at in the text, and this is what we're going to preach on today. Uh, by the way, the... The overwhelming majority of our neighbors around here don't believe what we're preaching this morning. And so the authority of Scripture, look at what, let's go ahead and read our text, and then we'll come back and pull out our points. We'll read our text together and then come back. Beginning verse 10, Paul says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my conversation in times past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion, above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which he once destroyed. And they glorified God in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you for this day and this beautiful weather. We do praise you for those that have come this morning. We pray that you would just bless the preaching of your word, that Christ will be magnified. And Lord, I pray that you would search the hearts and the minds of the listeners this morning. God, both online and in service, I pray that you would save the lost. Lord, if one is not, uh, God, experiencing the joy, maybe they're saved, but they don't have that assurance, they don't have that joy and that peace, I pray that you grant it. Lord, would you empty me of sin and self and fill me your Holy Spirit, and we'll thank you and praise you for it, Lord. Christ, I pray these things. Amen. So we are looking this morning at the thought of on whose authority? On whose authority? What authority should we have in our life? Well, the first one, as I mentioned, is the authority of Scripture. Uh, in verse 10 through 12, he says, For I do, do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? He is comparing himself with these Judaizers. For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, literally he is talking about in Acts chapter 9 when uh, Saul, Paul, was on his way to Damascus with the legal authority to kill Christians. And, of course, Lord Jesus Christ revealed Himself to him from heaven, shone a light, blinded him in the presence of others. He fell off his horse, and God saved him right there on the road to Damascus. 
Uh, Derek mentioned this morning, chose him and called him out by his grace. And the very man that was going to persecute these Christians, now he became one. And so he's giving his testimony, but I really want to pay attention to this word revelation here. Uh, In another sense, this speaks of inspiration. And the word inspiration means God breathed. It is the breath of God. And in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, uh, the Bible says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so it says that the Scriptures, God's Word, Genesis to Revelation, is divinely inspired. It is the breath of God, the words of God. There is nothing else anywhere that is given that title, that given that label. Uh, the words of prophet, so-called prophets of today, it's not said of them. So-called apostles and you know, specific churches, God does not say that about those things. He says it about His Word. And so there is no other source of authority for Christians. And we don't need, as I've said many times, we don't need to get caught in this trap of, well, I believe the Bible because the Bible says so. Well, I believe it because it says so too, but it's somewhat circular reasoning. We don't have to be stuck by it. We're not limited to that. So why, should, why do we know that the Bible is authoritative? Well, I've got several reasons, and I know I've mentioned these in the past, but I really want to drive these home. We know that the Bible, Genesis Revelation, is inspired and preserved because of the unity of the books. A lot of people that read the Bible have never been taught any better. They don't know that the Bible was not written by one author. It was written by over 40 authors over a period of around 1,500 years, and yet it reads as if there is one author. Most of the authors of the Bible, they never even met each other. Sometimes they live hundreds of years apart and hundreds of miles apart, and yet it reads... It just flows so smoothly. The themes of the Old Testament are the same things you see in the New Testament. You see Jesus Christ in the gospel all the way through the pages of Scripture. We see the first gospel message in Genesis 3 and verse 15. We see all of these themes and how they fit together. Contrast that with any other religious work. Think about the Book of Mormon. It was written by one man, Joseph Smith. You read the Book of Mormon. The book didn't even agree with itself much less the doctrine of covenants or the pearl of great price or the the prophets of today. The prophets of today may say something that completely contradicts the prophets of yesterday. It's a bunch of subjective nonsense. There's no absolute truth there. There's no absolute truth. And if if you don't have an absolute standard of truth, then you're left with subjective nonsense. You have no authoritative standard by which to declare anything right or wrong or true or false. This is the greatest Achilles heel of the atheist. I've said this before, but whenever I've been on the streets or whatever, and I've been doing some outreach, and I begin to talk to atheists or debate with them, uh, I I just go straight to the moral law. You think it's wrong to kill somebody? Oh, yeah, it's, murder is a horrible thing is what they say. I've never met a so-called immoral atheist. And I say, well, by what standard could you say that murder is wrong? And they say, well, you don't need anybody to tell you that. That's just something we all know. I said, the murderer doesn't know that. The murderer thinks it's okay to murder. And you're saying that it's not okay to murder. So now all we have is two conflicting opinions. Who's right and who's wrong? <laughs> you see, they have to borrow from the Christian worldview to make that work. See, I've got, an, I've got an authoritative standard. Thou shall not kill. That's what God said. Same thing about stealing. Same thing about abortion. Same thing about adultery. How can an atheist with any authority, with a straight face, say they have an, any way of saying what's right or wrong? You can't do that. Hey, we all, we all evolve from fish, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the honest atheist. But they know better than that because God not only wrote it in a book, He wrote it in our hearts. We're made in His image and He's a righteous God. He tells us not to steal because He's not a thief. He tells us not to kill because He's not a murderer. And so we could go on and on. You understand that. 
But there's unity here in this standard. We also know that it's inspired and preserved because of its unparalleled prophecy. There are some 1,817 prophecies in Scripture that have been fulfilled right now. There's even more that take place um, in Revelation. We've talked about those. Uh, we're talking about those on Wednesday night. Um, but, I mean, so specific. Can't, you cannot argue with them. It's so specific. Go read what Daniel said about Alexander the Great. He did everything but call his name. Hundreds of years before he rose. Daniel said that the, the king of Greece would conquer the king of Medo-Persia. Nobody at that time thought that was possible. And yet he shows up and he does it. And then it says that the king of Greece would suddenly die. Alexander the Great mysteriously died at the age of 32. And then Daniel said that the kingdom would be divided in four ways. When Alexander the Great died... Uh, the empire was divided into four of his generals' control. Isn't that amazing? So specific. Even Christ fulfilled over 300 prophecies by himself. I mean, we could go over and over and over the prophecies that have been fulfilled. The Bible has withstood the strictest of scrutiny. No other book can make that claim. In fact, the few times that the Mormons have tried to make prophecies, they fell flat on their face. <laughs> You can look this up. This is for the whole world to see. Brigham Young said from a pulpit, lectern, whatever you want to call it, that there was men on the moon. And guess what? There ain't none. Uh, in fact, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith in 1961 said that, yeah, there's men on the moon, but we'll never get there. Well, we got there. I mean, they just need to stop. They need to stop. They don't have that. They can't do that because they're not inspired by God. Only a God who is out time, outside of time, space, and matter could give these men this kind of knowledge. That's the only way that that happens. Uh, and another reason we know that the Scriptures are inspired and preserved by God, and mo this point speaks most specifically to the Old Testament as authoritative, but... Our Lord quotes the Old Testament all the time as an authority. The apostles quote the Old Testament as an authority. Um, Harold Wilmington said, Our Lord said the law would be fulfilled, Matthew 5.18. And the scriptures could not be broken, John 10.35. It has been estimated that over one-tenth of Jesus' recorded New Testament words were taken from the Old Testament. In the four Gospels, 180 of the 1,800 verses that report his discourses are either Old Testament quotes or Old Testament allusions. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 24 and verse 27, he was talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. <clears throat> and it says, "...in beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." He pointed back to Moses and the prophets to point to himself because they prophesied of him. In Luke 24 and verse 44, he said, Jesus said, These are the words which I spake unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. In that one verse, Jesus references all of the categories of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the books of poetry, all of them. He said, hey, these are authoritative. When Satan came to Jesus in Matthew 4, uh, to tempt him in the wilderness, every time Satan came up with a, with a temptation, what did Jesus say? It is written. It is written. It is written. Referring back to specifically uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And then what did Satan say? Satan says it is written. Even Satan quoted Scripture to Jesus. He quoted Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, but, but Satan removed four words. It says he shall give his angels charge concerning thee to keep thee in all thy ways, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Uh, Satan removed the phrase, in all thy ways. It wasn't the ways of God that he should go jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. He was, God decreed he would go to the cross. And so Satan can twist Scripture to try to make it say something it doesn't say. And what did Jesus come back with? It is written again. 
And so that's our sword of the Spirit. That is our authority. If it was an authority for Jesus and the apostles, it's an authority for us. Now, people say, well, yeah, the, the Scriptures are inspired, but how do you know that it's just limited to Genesis to Revelation? Well, I'm glad you asked. Well, we know that the canon is closed. And the canon, the word canon simply means a measuring stick or a standard by which to uh, gain authority, really. And uh, the re- there are several reasons we know that the canon is closed and the book of Revelation was the last inspired scripture. And I would say, first of all, we know this because of the warning given in Revelation chapter 22. In the very last chapter of the very last book of the Bible, God puts a curse on anyone who would add or take away from the book. And what the cults would say is, yeah, but it says that in Deuteronomy and Proverbs as well, and, and they still added to it. Here's, no, no, I'm time out. They, they did not add to the book of Deuteronomy. They did not add to those books where those warnings are found. And then they would say, well, okay, as long as we don't add to the book of Revelation, we should be good. But here's the thing. The book of Revelation goes all the way to the end of time. Its prophecies cover all the way to the happily ever after. There is nothing to be added to that. That cannot be said of Deuteronomy or Proverbs or anywhere else this warning was made. So God is, God is telling us in prophetic form how everything is going to play out, what is the end, the new heavens and the new earth, happily ever after, amen. There's, nothing, there's no period of time that's not covered in those prophecies. Therefore, there's nothing to be added to that. But also, and I've mentioned this recently in our Knowing God Bible study, and I'm not going to spend much time here because I don't want to beat a dead horse, but we do have some people here this morning that weren't there for that. And that is this. This is so important to know this. But the early church realized very quickly that they needed a system to come up with to discern what was inspired Scripture and and what wasn't because you have to understand in this day... They didn't have email or cell phones or anything else. When they wanted to communicate long distances, they wrote letters. And so you do realize that Paul wrote a lot of letters that didn't make it in the Bible. The same could be said of Peter and John and the rest of them. And so not only that, but there were other people that were claiming to be inspired that were writing on behalf of God. So you've got this smorgasbord of, of inspired authors that are writing things that may not need to be in the Bible. And you've got other people claiming inspiration and, and claiming authority that may not... How do, we, how do we make heads or tails of all this? So they came up with a four-fold test of inspiration. Number one, this is the test now. Number one, apostolic authority or a- apostolic authorship, I should say. Were these books written by apostles or close associates? And every New Testament book was written by an apostle except for Mark and Luke. And if you understand this, uh, Mark was Peter's copyist. So he had all of this first-hand information. That's why some people call the book of Mark the gospel of Peter. It's it's the gospel according to Peter is what it is. Mark just wrote it. Same thing with Luke. Luke was a very close associate of Paul. Um, And so that that was one thing that had to be clear. If it wasn't written by an apostle or a close associate, it didn't count. Uh, The second was the test of antiquity. Were they old enough? Did they fit in the time frame uh, from around 40-ish A.D. to 100 A.D. when uh, around the time that John wrote Revelation in the the 90s there? And uh, that's why the Gnostic Gospels never made it. One of the reasons they were were too new. They weren't old enough. Uh, Accuracy. Did these books line up doctrinally with the books that passed the other test? Uh, as I've said before, like uh, one of the, the Gnostic Gospels is called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. One of the reasons it didn't make it in among se- there were several reasons, but one of them is it has stories of Jesus as a boy doing miracles. That's not scriptural. He never worked a miracle to help himself. He didn't work a miracle in childhood. That's why when he comes on the scene in his ministry, in John chapter 2, when he turned the water into wine... It said, this beginning of miracles did Jesus at Cana of Galilee. That was his first miracle. That doesn't square 
with what the so-called Gospel of Thomas said. Therefore, it didn't make it. There was the test of accuracy when it comes to doctrine. But then the last test was, was the letter widely accepted by the church? If it wasn't widely accepted by the church, you can pretty much mark it off the list. And so that's the test. Now think about that. That's a very strenuous test. Think about some of the so-called holy books of today. Uh, The Book of Mormon, as I said, or uh, the New World Translation of the Bible, or uh, some of the Hindu writings, or whatever the case may be. They would fail every one of those. Every single one of them. Listen, anybody can claim private revelation. I could come to you this morning and say, listen, guys, uh, I had an angel come to my bedroom last night, and he told me, God just put this in my heart, y'all need to give me a six-figure salary. I felt God on that. (laughs) I mean, I I could come, an angel told, God is going to bless the fire out of this church if you just buy me a mansion. I mean, I could, I could say anything that I want to say, and nobody can vet that. Nobody. And we've had several Mormons visit this church. And I go up to them, and I talk to them afterwards, and talk to them, and have a very friendly conversation. And I ask them about their gospel, what they believe, what, what's their good news, what makes them right with God. And almost without exception, and they're encouraged to do this, the whole burning in the bosom thing, they, they encourage this kind of of secret revelation, they tell me things like, well, an angel came to their bedroom, or, or even Jesus came to them and, and told them that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God and that Mormonism is true. But the problem with that is everybody in different religions, they have different experiences. I've had Catholics tell me similar, similar things. I've had Muslims say similar things. I've had charismatic so-called Christians say similar things. Who's right and who's wrong? How can we take one experience above another? There's no way to vet that. There's no, there's no measuring stick. Because I, can just as, I could have just as easily told those people, well, look, that's funny. Funny you say that because I had an angel come visit me and he told me that sola scriptura is true, <laughs> that Joseph Smith is a false prophet and Mormonism is bunk. <laughs> now what are we going to do? We have two conflicting experiences. You know what the difference is? This right here. We are to try the spirits. First John says try the spirits, whether they be of God. How can you do that without a standard? You can't do that. You know what? When he says try the spirits, measure them. How can you measure it without a standard of measurement? If they don't line up with this book, they're false. I don't care how nice they are. I don't care how sincere they are. I don't care how much they believe their experience. And another thing I ask them too, I mean, some of these experiences are probably real. But I ask them, how, do you, how can you know for sure whether your experiences were demonic or not? I don't know. Well, how am I supposed to believe you then? <laughs> it's, very, it's very sad. It's very scary, to be honest. So we see, we, we can trust the authority of the Word of God. And some might say, well, okay. Yeah, sure, the, what the apostles wrote, they were inspired, but uh, as a Joseph Smith would have said, the, the Word of God's been lost. And all these copies of copies through the year, yeah, maybe they were inspired at the time, but they weren't preserved, and so we can't trust the Bible. That's baloney too. And we know that, number one, because what Jesus said, Matthew 24 and verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my Word shall never pass away. So either Jesus is a liar or we still have the Word of God. And so you say, well, if you're quoting that from a corrupt Bible, that circular reason, well, i got some more stuff for you. Hold on. Now, this is also proven by extra-biblical evidence. Now, listen, let me say this. If somebody wants to deny the authority and the trustworthiness of the Bible, they would have a much better shot at trying to disprove that what the apostles wrote was actually inspired. That would be easier than trying to prove that we actually don't have what the apostles wrote. Because you're fighting a losing battle. The evidence is just too overwhelming. And um, for one thing, let me explain this real quick. Uh, There is a process here and there is a difference in these terms. Uh, Inspiration, we've talked about that. That's when God put His words in the mind and the mouth and the the pen of these writers. But then you have transmission. 
Now, what transmission is, is a part of preservation. It's where you take the originals in Hebrew and Greek, which, by the way, the originals are gone. They're no more. But we have copies of the originals. And transmission is copies upon copies upon copies. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have FedEx or Quick Copy back then. They had to handwrite it. And so if a church wanted these letters, they had to get a copy. If an individual wanted it, they had to get a copy. And even today, thousands of years later, we have over 5,000, right around 5,700 preserved manuscripts. And they line up almost perfectly. Um, and so it really was a built-in way of, of uh, shielding any kind of funny business or any kind of falsehood sneaking in because if you have 100 manuscripts that say the same thing, and then you have two or three manuscripts that are totally different than these, then you know they're bunk. Somebody tried to sneak that in there. And so um, it, the evidence is just overwhelming. Um, but then you have translation. Translation is when you take a copy from the original languages into another language. This is a translation of the preserved Word of God in the original languages. And so even these are accurate. We can trust them. We can because we have so much comparison to be able to do. And for a long time, people said, well, the, the manuscript copies we have aren't that old and they can't be trusted. But then it's like every archaeological discovery that we make proves that. It just proves God's Word to be true. I'll say this and I'll move on to my last point. We'll be done. But uh, I mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls before. In fact... I went to Walgreens this week, and the latest National Geographic is about the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You need to, if you can get a copy, get a copy. It's really informative. It's really amazing. I've been there to where they were discovered at the caves of Qumran. But in 1947 to 48, and, and even more were discovered later, um, they discovered these scrolls hidden in these clay pots in the caves of Qumran, which is in present-day Jordan. And... What they realized was is that these were preserved manuscripts. All of the Dead Sea Scrolls are the Old Testament books. Understand that. And what's interesting about this is in our Bibles, when you look at the Old Testament, our Old Testament books come from manuscripts that are about 1,000 years old, give or take. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls are about 2,000 years old, twice as old as the ones we got our Old Testament from. And now when this, when this news came out, understand these are complete copies, uh, multiple copies of every single book of the Old Testament but Esther. And the atheists and the liberals and the progressive, they were so excited about this news because if they can prove that the manuscripts from 2,000 years old are completely different than the manuscripts from 1,000 years old, the ones we got our Bible from, they can prove that our Bibles are unreliable. And our faith goes out the window. We can't trust anything. <laughs> Did you know what they found? The manuscripts from 2,000 years ago are the, exactly the same as the manuscript from 1,000 years old, the one you have in your lap right now. And so the atheist just calmly whistled away. And <laughs> you, You'll never hear an atheist talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. They don't talk about it on podcasts because it's a death knell to what they have tried to believe and push. We can trust it. We have the Word of God. We can trust the Bible. Genesis to Revelation as the Word of God. But then secondly, I've got to move quickly. Secondly, not only the authority of Scripture, but also the authority of the Scripture authors, the Scriptural writers. Um, now, let's ask the question, what about the apostles themselves? How can we recognize a true apostle? Now, this is really, this is really important for, the, for us living in this part of the country. It's also important in the day in which we live because the cults are really big on visual representatives of God on the earth. They're really big on that. Well, how do we, how do we reckon, what's our authority today? What's our structure today? What is our leadership supposed to look like today? Now, first of all, when it comes to recognizing an apostle, I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert. There are no apostles today. They're not. In fact, there were only 12, only 12 apostles. Now, I know that, I know that uh, Matthias may technically be a number 13. The reason I don't personally include Matthias is because I believe that Peter, being Peter, got ahead of God 
and tried to replace Judas when God was already going to replace Judas with Paul. You don't ever read anything about Matthew. You don't know nothing about that guy. So I just, I've got my skepticism there. I'm going to say there's 12. There's always supposed to have been 12. And so that's neither here nor there. But let me say this about the apostles. They were a one-time thing. There can't be any more apostles than there can be more Christ. Because even by the standard of the Word of God, there were three qualifications of an apostle. This is very important. I encourage you to study this in your own time. But in order to be an apostle, you had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ. You find that in Acts chapter 1, verse 22. You find it in Acts chapter 10, verses 39 through 41. None of us have witnessed, and nobody today has witnessed, the resurrected Christ. Some may claim they have. We're going to deal with that in a minute. But the second qualification of an apostle is they had to be personally appointed by Christ Himself. You find that in Acts 3, 5, and 15. All those chapters map that out. Uh, But also, an apostle had to be proven by miraculous signs and wonders. Acts chapter 1, 2, 4, 5, 8, and so on. And we certainly don't see that today. If somebody claims to be an apostle, where's the proof? Who, Who are they healing? Because Peter, I mean, even his shadow going over somebody would heal somebody. Who's doing that today? Who's doing that? Nobody. <laughs> what about even, even Paul? You read about in Acts chapter 19, if that guy so much as touched a handkerchief or an apron or something, if somebody were to take that apron and touch somebody else with it, they were healed. <laughs> Who's doing that today? Peter Popoff? Benny Hinn? Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Cobra, what are they? If they didn't have a camera to hide behind, they would be broke as a joke. They can't do any of that stuff. So if somebody claims to be an apostle, I usually just say, have a nice day and walk on. I mean, you know, they're not an apostle. That's garbage. There's no such thing. The office is, is gone. It's done. And when you look at what Paul wrote on these three points, he defends himself on these three points. Look at verse 11. Verse <clears throat> uh, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he has been called out and appointed by Jesus Christ. We just talked about that. For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I confer not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them uh, which were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and abode within fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, say James, the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. Now, the argument that the Judaizers made is that Paul claimed direct revelation from Christ and that anyone could do that. People can say that today. Anyone can do that. But here's, you're comparing apples and oranges and here's why. Because the Apostle Paul had a reputation for killing Christians. Then he became one. Then he died. He was martyred as a Christian, had his head cut off. Um, And he was recognized by the churches that he persecuted. The churches at Judea, Galatia, all these churches, they recognized Paul's authority. By the way, Paul, under the inspiration of God, wrote 13 books in the New Testament. And he was recognized by the churches. Who else can say that? Another thing is, and he mentions it here, not only was he recognized by the churches, he was recognized by the other apostles. Nobody else can say that. If Paul was not an apostle, you better rest assured Peter and James and John, those guys would have ratted him out. But instead they said, yes, 
He was called by God. He is an apostle. <clears throat> Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, he says, "...account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation." Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. He is claiming the writings of Paul as being inspired. He said, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Now, Paul was a miracle worker. He was appointed by Christ. He wrote under the inspiration of God. He was an apostle. Yes, anyone can claim to be an apostle, but they're not going to be able to back it up. Um, by the way, the writings of the apostles are still our authority today. Now, I'll say this and I'm done. I'm really coming in for a landing here. The question is, we've seen our personal authority, but what about church authority and structure? What about church polity today? How are we supposed to be structured? Who is our authority? Now, as we've seen, there is no apostolic succession. Now, the Mormons and Catholics both claim that, they have, that they're of the apostles, that the apostles just came on down and they're still apostles today and they're still authoritative today. And if you want to see something funny, I know this is nerdy funny, okay, but I'm a nerd. You want something nerdy funny? Go online and look up these forums where the Catholics and the Mormons are arguing about who really has the, the real apostles. <laughs> That's pretty funny. You know who the real apostles are? The ones you're holding in your lap. That's the real ones. That's the same authority today. Um, very quickly, let's go to Ephesians 4. I want you to see this. One book over, Ephesians 4. <clears throat> Paul dealt with this issue. Ephesians 4 and verse 11, And he, talking about Christ, who is the head of the church, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, or the building up of the body of Christ. Now, what's very important about this, I want you to notice, first of all, there is no office of priest here. You notice that? There is no office of priest. The Old Testament priest, the Jewish priest, they were a foreshadowing of the real priest, Christ. Christ is our only priest today. He's our great high priest. It's one of the biggest themes in the book of Hebrews. We don't need a go-between between us and God. Paul told Timothy there is one God and one mediator, one go-between between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. We don't need an earthly priest. Now, Derek is teaching us about the priesthood of the believers. That's a very real thing, but I want to encapsulate it in one sentence. The priesthood of believers means simply this, that we can go straight into the presence of God without an earthly mediator. I don't need a Catholic priest. I don't need to confess my sin to a hole in the wall to somebody just as sinful as me. And by the way, here's what, in order to survive, here's what the cults have to convince people of that they are necessary to get to God. Their priesthood, their sacraments, their church membership. Yes, Jesus is the only way to heaven, but we're the only way to Jesus. You ought to run from that. Run from it. They're totally unnecessary. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Another thing I want you to notice about this text is the order. This is very important, the way that Paul gives this order. First apostles, they were the foundation. They're no more. Some prophets, they came after the apostles and they were able to preach the Word of God without having a copy of the New Testament. God gave them His Word. They're gone because now we have the completed Word of God. Then we get to evangelists. They're really, biblically, evangelists are church planters. They go somewhere, see a lot of people saved, start a church, insert a um, native pastor, and go plant other churches. That's the biblical model anyway. And then some pastors and teachers, which I believe is an office tied up. You can't pastor without teaching. And so today, the church authority and leadership is the pastors, the elders, the bishops. They're all, that's all the same office. And by the way, when I say authority, I'm not a lord over God's heritage. I have no authority outside to tell you what this book says. That's it. That's it. To tell you what the book says. And for y'all that know me, maybe I've counseled you. 
Maybe you confided in me and asked me questions or talked to me. Never one time can anybody accuse me of saying, well, God told me to tell you. I'm not going to do it. And if I do, slap me, okay? You, you have permission in the name of Jesus to lay hands on me in that situation. I've never said that. I'm not going to because God told me is no substitute for God said. And if I give you my opinion, I'm going to tell you, hey, you know, you may want to think about this or pray about this. And, and that's as far as I'm going to go with it. I don't have that kind of authority. Um, but then as far as structure goes, this is the very last place and we're done. Look at 1 Timothy 4. I want you to see this for yourself. 1 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> what about the structure and polity? 1 Timothy 4 verse 13 it says, "Till I come, and Paul is speaking to Timothy here, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which it was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Now, what this is, it's, it's a recognition of a gift. Where the cults get this wrong, you're not given the gift by other apostles, preachers, prophets, putting their hands on you and transferring the gift. The presbytery here means the body of elders, which I believe biblically and in most cases is the biblical pattern, you know, multiple elders, multiple pastors. And I think that's biblical in, in many of the situations. But uh, there's more accountability that way. But what they're saying is they are recognizing, not giving, but recognizing the call of God in Timothy's life. That's the way that it's supposed to work. Um, you know, I've heard some preachers kind of frown on ordination, like, ah, blah. It's biblical. Not from the state, but from the church. Because there's accountability there. I was ordained out of Little Sandy Baptist Church in 2010. I was charged by my pastor and another pastor in the county that knew me. There were many other pastors that were there, ordained ministers, who signed my ordination certificate. And if I ever get out of line, they're supposed to hold me accountable. Uh, I have phone numbers. And listen, I'm so big on this. Y'all, even when, when, when this health thing happened to Leah and we moved out here, um, what I did after the church had voted in a new pastor, I'd already given my resignation, but I stayed and I, I helped them find another pastor, recommended somebody. The church was completely in charge of interviewing and voting and all that. But listen, when they voted him in, my last service as the pastor of Little Sandy Baptist Church, I preached a farewell sermon. I charged the church for what they were supposed to do going forward. The new pastor walked up the steps as the new pastor, and he charged me, because we didn't know at the time what we were going to do. He charged me as a missionary out of that church under their authority, because that's the way it's supposed to be. And I told, that, I told little Sandy, I said, listen, I love you. I've been your pastor for eight years. I've known many of you for decades. But I said, when I walk down these steps, I'll be your friend. I'll be your brother in Christ, and I'll help you when I can. But when I walk down these steps, I'm no longer your pastor. He is. And when he walked up, he charged me. That's the way that it's supposed to be. There's no such thing as a rogue missionary or a rogue pastor or preacher. That's the way that it works. That's, that's the structure. And so not a, not a hierarchy of leadership, but certainly an accountability. So we can trust the Word of God. We can trust God-called ordained pastors who preach and live by the Word of God. And anything outside of that goes against God's chosen method of revealing Himself. That's our authority, and we can trust it. What's your authority today? Would you stand? She comes. <clears throat> 